Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Diana and Grant, of course, for leading us in worship this Sunday. Brady and Nicole are out for one more week, along with many other couples as well. You know, as an American, I love Memorial Day as we honor and love our veterans, but as a pastor, I lose most of my congregation for the week. So we look forward to everyone's joyful return next Sunday. Of course, we want to take this opportunity to express our deepest thanks and our gratitude for those who have served in our armed forces, of whom we have many at Harrison Hills. We also want to take a moment to remember the families in Texas this week who tragically lost their children to the most heinous demonstration of sin and and of a depraved mind. Yet, beloved, if we are to see and if we are to process these events from a biblical worldview, our minds must be transformed. They must be saturated and washed in the word, or we will most certainly be deceived or taken by the winds of culture and the crowd. Paul exhorted the believers in Rome, and we are exhorted today to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And Paul goes on to tell us why we are exhorted to do this, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? Paul is showing us here that one of the many benefits of having our mind renewed by the word is being able to to be discerning through that word. That we might be able to prove what is the will of God. That we might be discerning of falsehoods and error. That we might be able to define truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus said in John 17, 17. That means that God has given us to renew our minds, to discern the will of God, to refute that which is false, is the word of God. It's not on a feeling that we move. It's not on emotion that we decide or that we process an event that we see on television. We do not follow our heart, for that will deceive us. It is by the word of God, written, sealed, and once for all delivered to the saints. (coughs) Excuse me. It all rises and falls on the test bed of Scripture. J.C. Riles encourages us, quote, The true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, and all practices. These are his marching orders. Prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all by the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Examine all by the light of the Bible. Test all by the crucible of the Bible. That which can abide the fire of the Bible. Receive, hold, believe, and obey. That which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. Close quote. You are not here for a preacher or a personality. You are here for the word of God. You are here to see Christ in his word. 
There is a church very well known in Calcutta, India, that was led by William Carey, many of you know, around 200 years ago. It's named the Circular Road Baptist Church. It's still there today. And any pastor who's given the privilege of preaching in that church will first sit and he'll wait in an old chair that was used by William Carey. And he sat there for a purpose. From the seated position is a sign that is visible only to the person sitting in that chair. And it says, sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. It is through the word, Christ revealed in his word, that our mind is renewed. That we may be able to prove what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. The Word transforms us. We leave the pages of Scripture different than we arrived, which I pray will be true for us this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning, after long last, we come to the end of chapter 9 in Mark. For those of you keeping track, Mark 9 began for us exactly three months ago with the transfiguration. You know, I had a congregant remind me the other day, they are serious about wanting their I Survived the Gospel of Mark at HHBC t-shirt. So we might have to print those. Well, this morning's text comes hot off the heels of our last message covering verses 42 through 48. And we dove into one of Jesus' most challenging warnings and exhortations, both to believers and unbelievers alike. Jesus portraying reality as it is putting before us death and life, heaven and hell. Having begun the week before that, even in verse 40, Jesus showed the disciples a dichotomy. He showed them a binary state of existence for all peoples. You are either for Christ or against Christ. You are either for Christ or against him. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. There's no third way. To which Jesus gives the starkest warning of what awaits those who are not radical against sin in their lives. Of course, encompassing all areas of our lives, Jesus spoke of cutting off the hand and the foot, of gouging out the eye, the hand representing what we do, the foot where we go, the eye what we see, saying it is better to go to heaven with one hand, one foot or one eye, having it chopped off or gouged out, than to go to hell with both. Of course, the meaning not being self-mutilation, Jesus is not talking about a literal cutting off of the limbs, but he's giving an extreme analogy. He's speaking of the immense cost of sin, the high stakes of sin, and the intensity with which we are to avoid it. Laying bare for us, laying raw the reality of hell in our text. With Jesus speaking three times of unquenchable fire, a place of torment where the worm never dies. Of course, most American evangelicals today are shocked to hear that by the numbers, Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven in Scripture. And what a very difficult topic it is, certainly not one that is chosen by a preacher. And of course, we mention that difficult text as being a perfect example of why we are an expository congregation. Why we preach verse by verse. Why your pastor approaches the pulpit chained to the text that I can't wiggle out of the tough topics. The next verse is always the next verse. Come what may. But what a blessing to know that we are getting the whole counsel of God. 
that we are not cherry-picking over the difficult and unpopular subjects. And the word hell, through both disuse in the church and misuse in society at large, the word and the topic is most challenging and offensive to the 21st century ear, or it's lost its meaning entirely. It was not always so, beloved. Throughout the 16th and 17th and 1800s, thunder and lightning used to crackle from the pulpits as preachers would warn listeners of final judgment, of the permanent consequence of leaving this world outside of Christ. And to the church's downfall, that has largely been abandoned in deference to culture, leaving a sense of complacency and ignorance as people don't see the judgment of God in their daily lives, in the here and now. People are more apt to believe that this life is hell rather than a place that awaits enemies of God, perhaps quietly believing that judgment delayed is judgment denied. And of course, for the world, death is the ultimate consequence. It's the ultimate loss and penalty. And yet Jesus shows us in our text that there was something much worse than death. Death itself was just a gateway. Jesus exhorted us in Luke 12, 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. As always, Jesus is turning our gaze to the eternal, having one eye on heaven and one eye on hell. Whether we like it or not, those are the binary realities of our life. Those are the two largest, most consequential realities of every person listening this morning, whether good or bad, to our joy or to our horror. Even if you don't believe it, this is our reality. We were reminded last week that 100 years from now, every one of us will be conscious, awake, and aware of where we are. And so shall we be. We must live in light of eternity. Scripture compares our life to a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. For the believer, this spurs us on to a life of holiness. As John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. To be intense, to be radical about keeping sin out of our lives, realizing what's at stake if we allow influences in our lives that bring us into the dungeon of sin. For the believer, Jesus' warning spurs us on to evangelism, loving the lost, desiring to be the means by which God draws someone to repentance. You know, someone asked me recently, why evangelize if God has already elected people to salvation? Because he's not only chosen the person, but he's also chosen the means and the method by which they will come to faith. And that means is method is evangelizing with the gospel for the lost jesus words were the starkest of warnings jesus describes hell in our text message as unquenchable fire you were given even more graphic detail in verse 48 where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched jesus is drawing his imagery directly from isaiah 66 understanding that the worm does not die because the host is never consumed always dying, but never dead. We were reminded that hell is not a separation from God, as we so often hear in evangelical cliches. God will certainly be there. In fact, thinking about the ladies' Bible study on the attributes of God beginning very soon, 
God will certainly be there. But certain aspects, certain outworkings of his attributes will not be manifested or experienced in hell. His love and his mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his gentleness, his long-suffering, none of those will be present. But in his omnipresence, he will be there. But only in his power and in his wrath which are just as much a part of God's attributes and character as the ones we most prefer to focus on. But beloved, we should rejoice that God has wrath, that there will come a day when he will deal with sin. Jeremiah lamented, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Job asked, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? all over the Psalms, lamenting the prosperity of the wicked, seeming like they're getting away with it. Not only getting away with it, but prospering. It is not so. There will come a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And we rejoice in that. We desire that justice be done. God is glorified when he meets out justice, just as glorified as when he extends mercy. And how he chooses to glorify himself between those two options, between justice or mercy, is his prerogative. But either way, whether he executes judgment upon sinners or executes mercy to believers, he is glorified in that. And God is for God above all else. God is for God. We were reminded last week that hell is not the absence of God. It is the presence of God without a mediator, without the person of, and blood of Jesus Christ to stand between you and God. And it, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And so the lost are warned. And so believers are exhorted, living with heaven in one eye and hell in the other. Today, our thread continues in this vein, but really connects us all the way back to our series on counting the cost of discipleship. Back in Mark 8, 34 through 38. And it's almost a golden strand, beloved, that needs to be followed in these passages. We are going to see, yet again, a call to sacrifice. An expectation of suffering presented to us, yet again. You know, it's almost as if Jesus knew what these disciples would go through after he would ascend back to heaven. That each one of them would give their lives, many in a horrible martyrdom, and all would sacrifice tremendously for their witness of Jesus Christ. And the theme in our text today seems again to be one that calls for a radical obedience, for an intensity of holiness. Jesus continues to lay it on very thick with his disciples as the time grows short to Calvary. So with that, let's dive into our short text this morning. Mark 49, Mark 9, 49 and 50. Mark 9, 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue on in this vein of 
difficult teaching uh, as you pour into your disciples as time grows short to your crucifixion. Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts. We ask that you would till the ground. We ask that in difficult texts like this, you would give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us a, a disposition to receive. Holy Spirit, as always, we ask that you would wield this word, that the arrow would find its mark. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, if you were to go to harrisonhills.org this morning, you would find the church's position on Scripture, enumerating the doctrine of Scripture, talking about the inerrancy of it, the infallibility and the inspiration of it, the sufficiency of it. And tucked away in these, affirmation is, in, in these affirmations is what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. It's just a fun word to say, perspicuity. My Annalise would say that's a funny word, I bet. The word perspicuity simply means clarity. To say that something is perspicacious is to say that it is clear. In short, the doctrine of perspicuity means that the central message of the Bible is clear and understandable, and that the Bible itself can be properly interpreted in a normal, literal sense. In fact, we see this doctrine enumerated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They state, quote, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in the in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them close quote that is the perspicuity of scripture however i was reminded this week with this challenging text that the perspicuity of the word, the clarity of the word of God, does not eliminate the need for study, for exegesis, for interpretation, explanation, and exposition. We need all of those. While some things are so simple a child can understand them, we are also separated from this text by time and culture which does not change the meaning, right? A text only has one meaning, but that does mean that we must labor to draw it out. We must labor to draw it out. And so it is with our text this morning. This was a difficult one, one that required wrestling with, one that theologians have lined up on different angles. This verse requires all the tools in the toolbox of interpreting Scripture to draw out the meaning which we will labor to do here. So with that, let's open our first verse, Mark 9, verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. All right, well, three things we must see here, first of all. We see one who, we see one who, and we see two what's, with one of those what's actually being in action. Our who we see here is Everyone. So the obvious question that jumps out to us is, who is everyone in this text? Just believers? Believers and unbelievers? Well, we're going to need to wrestle with that one. Secondly, we see salt. And indeed, the action of saltine. And finally, we see fire. Now, these types of verses can almost be a little frustrating because they seem a bit cryptic on the surface. They're not clear to us in Lanesville 2022 as they might have been to an ancient Jew. 
So let us first determine who everyone refers to. Who will be salted with fire? Well, context for us is king. When read in light of the immediate verses, Jesus is indeed speaking to his disciples. He's teaching his disciples, right? Thus we know for certainty that he is speaking first to believers. So we can definitely include them in the everyone category. But Jesus is giving warnings to the unbelieving as well. And we know this as Jesus is graphically warning of hell in the previous verses. Now, that's certainly valuable to the Christian in the, in the sense of encouraging our evangelism and our love for the lost, but this was a warning to unbelievers. Thus, it seems best that everyone here means exactly that, everyone. As we said over two messages now, the lost and the saved encompass every person on the planet. That is the binary reality. And here I would submit, humbly submit, due to context and due to topic and due to the plainest reading of the text, we should understand this verse to apply to both believers and unbelievers alike. But here is where it gets interesting. Here now we need to apply our two elements, both salt and fire, both separate and together, to both the unbeliever and the believer. Like, oh boy, we're never going to get to lunch. Yes, you will. Looking first to the unbeliever, all right, what does it mean that the unsaved will be salted with fire? Of course, we see salt and fire used in Scripture as both actual physical elements, but here we have what very much looks like a strange mixing of metaphors. It's a mixing of metaphors. While we'll do a deeper dive into the issue of salt in our next verse, as it, it deals specifically with that, we need to understand a basic principle of salt in Scripture to understand how it pertains to the unbeliever, specifically when combined with fire. And again, we'll go into more detail in verse 50, but here let us remember that the primary role of salt is to preserve. Sprinkled on meat, salted, preserved. Thus, the question must be asked, for what are the unbelieving preserved? Very simply, they are preserved for fire. They are preserved for fire. They are kept in judgment. They are preserved in judgment. Though the fire will burn, they will not be consumed. They will be salted and preserved in that hellfire. In natural course, fire would consume but it will not be so for the unsaved. It will not be so for those who have not come on their knees, who have not bowed the knee to Christ in repentance and faith, perhaps having lived otherwise very moral lives as upstanding tax-paying citizens, but have quietly chosen the pleasures of this life over taking up their cross. They will be salted and preserved for a lake of fire, unquenchable, where the worm does not die, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This salt is a curse to the damned. Being preserved, it will not allow it to stop, not ever. Ever consuming, but never consumed. This is a horrifying thought. One that people are trying to do away with, to ease their conscience of. For example, you might have noticed something called annihilationism that's getting very popular. 
This teaching was always a hallmark of Jehovah's Witnesses and, and of other cults, but we're seeing more mainstream acceptance of this teaching as the scriptural presentation of hell becomes less and less palatable to the postmodern man. Annihilationism simply says that when a sinner who's redeemed draws his last breath, they are simply blotted out of existence. Their great consequence is to merely miss out on the gift of eternal life and being with God. Now, as you can imagine, that would be much more palatable a teaching to today's ears than this fire and brimstone that this Jesus fella is talking about. Of course, the problem with this teaching, not only does it defy Scripture and our Lord's clear teaching on hell, but this would make God utterly unjust as he allows unrepentant sinners to completely get away with what amounts to a cosmic rebellion and a cosmic treason. We remember that it is God's very holiness that demands such a verdict. Hell does not necessarily point to the evilness of the deed. It points to the holiness of the offended God. Part of what makes God good is that he is holy, which means that he cannot look upon sin. If he is not holy, if he overlooks sin or just forgets about people or blots them out, he would not be holy, therefore he would not be good, therefore he would not be God. Which is, by the way, exactly the ultimate goal of these kinds of teachings, like annihilationism, to slowly do away with, full stop, with the God of Scripture. Yet Scripture is clear. It is perspicacious, our new word, on the issue of an everlasting and conscious punishment. So we see first off in our text that the lost will be salted with fire. Now how about for believers? What does it mean that a believer will be salted with fire? Again, we see and understand the function of salt first independently. The disciples have already been told that they are the salt of the earth in Matthew 5.13. They would have understood that to mean that they're, they're acting as preservatives in a decaying world, that they're the seasoners, so to speak, in a tasteless society, that believers are to maintain their utility and their usefulness, just like salt in their walk with the Lord. But just as the unbeliever will be salted and preserved for judgment, so the believer will be preserved through the fires of trial and of suffering on this earth. If you are in Christ, no matter the pain or the suffering or the trial by fire, if you be in him, no fire can destroy you. Again, J.C. Ryle writing, quote, All the powers of the world cannot take away my life till God permits. All the physicians of earth cannot preserve it when God calls me away. Close quote. We are kept and preserved salted with fire we cannot die until our work is done there are no devilish sneak attacks on the believer believe me satan would take your life if he could he would slay me where i stand here and now but we are preserved for our time we have been salted but as we mentioned earlier we have a bit of strange mixing of metaphors here in our text don't we that of salt and fire together so if we really want to grasp the meaning of Jesus saying for the believer here, we need to search out where else in Scripture do we see not only salt, 
or fire, but more importantly, where do we see salt and fire together? And therein lies our answer. Of course, we know Jesus would be referencing the Old Testament at this point, as that was the Scripture. So let me bounce around a few places here, and let's observe where we see salt and fire coming together. I'll look three or four places very quickly. I'll bounce around. I'll read them for you. First, looking to Ezra 6, verse 9. And whatever is needed... Wine or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them night by day without fail. Look at Ezekiel 43. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priests shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Of course. So we're seeing a clear theme here of temple worship, aren't we? Temple worship of the sacrificial system. Of the offering system. Well, that's very helpful to begin. That sets us on the right trajectory to how a first century Jew would have understood what Jesus is saying here. But if we're, if we're seeing, if we're talking about the later parts of the Old Testament, that means that we need to go back to when the rules for sacrifice were laid down. We need to go back to Leviticus. We go back to Leviticus, we're going to get to the root of it. We're going to get the what and the why. Indeed, we do see that given to us in Leviticus 2. You may turn there if you like, but I'll describe it to you in Leviticus 2. Here God is laying out the sacrificial system for what's known as the grain offering. Now we obviously have all the animal sacrifices of well, of course, symbolizing the atonement, right? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And this is a visible reminder of that. But that's not what's being talked about in Leviticus 2. This speaks of the grain offering. This is an offering of consecration. The first 12 verses talk about the different ways of presenting and preparing the different grain offerings, pouring oil on it, pouring frankincense on it. You did all sorts of different things depending on how you cooked and prepared it. That's all very interesting. It all carries meaning. Here, we get toward the end of the instructions, down to verse 13. Listen to this. It reads... You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt symbolizes the covenant God has made with his people. And yet it is to be remembered in this temple sacrifice of grain. The grain sacrifice, as we said, is not one that's made for sin. It's not one that's made for atonement. The grain sacrifice is one that is prepared out of love and devotion. The grain offering demonstrates the dedication of the worshipers to the Lord, to his precepts and to his laws. It's a beautiful offering. And in that, the Lord says, this offering that you're going to burn to demonstrate your commitment to give your life in service to me, I want you to remember my covenant with you. That I will be faithful. That I will keep and I will preserve you. You do have a part to play. You will prepare this offering just so. 
And now you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. Your labor, you will labor in this offering. You will go and you will collect the grain and you will prepare and you will work and it will be hard work depending on how much grain you had or didn't have. But over it all, seasoning it all, is the covenant promises of a faithful God. The salt will go over and season every bit that will be burned. There is not a bit that will be burned that is not covered in the truth of God's preserving power and of His enduring love. There is no part of the fire in the offering that will not be saturated in the covenant promises of God. It's utterly seasoned in salt. So what does that mean now? What does that mean for the New Testament believer? We have no more temple sacrifices. We have no more grain offerings. No, we are not talking about the atonement offerings, the slaying of animals, the shedding of blood. That's been fulfilled in the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God, the blood of the Lamb being shed. There is no more blood to be shed. Perfection has been slain for us already. But here, what about the grain offering? That commands salt and fire together. Our offering of dedication and of love and of devotion. What now is that sacrifice for the believer? Where is your grain offering? What is your grain offering? We don't need to guess. We know. Paul tells us Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your life of dedication to Christ as a believer, as one who has been bought and ransomed, is now the one who crawls up on the altar and lays himself down. It is presented as a sacrifice. My life, my desires, living for myself. My dedication and my love, my grain offering, I present as a living and holy sacrifice. That's the sacrifice. You will put yourself on the fire of the altar. You will You will be preserved through this. And because this fire, because this fire is not fireous for the unbeliever. Fire for the unbeliever only serves to harden them and to worsen them. The fire for the believer is God's fire. Yes, it can mean hardship. Yes, it can mean pain. But just as the lost will be preserved for judgment, the believer will be kept and preserved through the trials and the suffering. It's God's fire and the salt are God's covenant promises that are going to keep and sustain you. You will be salted with fire, beloved. But you have presented your life and your body as a holy sacrifice, putting yourself into his good care and mercy, and you will be salted with his salt, with his promises, with his faithfulness. And the fire that licks you on the altar is his fire, and it's refining you and purifying you, and he's keeping you through it all. Glory to God. You will be salted with fire. 
pain of fire takes on a whole new meaning for a believer who has a sovereign God who is orchestrating all things for their eternal good. We must praise Him for the fire that sanctifies and purifies. We must praise Him for the salt that keeps and preserves us through it all. As we present our bodies, our lives, our affections, our desires on the altar as a grain on your tongue where's the prayer of faith you are salted and preserved what a glorious promise to the believer you will be salted with fire god's fire god's salt here's my life salt me burn me lord what a peace through all life's storms for the believer that you will be salted with fire and yet what a tremendous warning Jesus goes on in verse 50, verse 50. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty with? With what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What is Jesus talking about here? (laughs) On the surface, it kind of makes no sense, right? Salt is a stable substance. If I put a container of pure salt in a jar and came back to it in 50 years, guess what it would taste like? Salt. It wouldn't even really degrade. It's pure. Salt that is saved from salting. Well, any of you who have had the opportunity to visit Israel, you, you likely would have been sure to visit the Dead Sea. And going for a float on the salty sea is an incredible sensation. As you're floating along, you can actually reach down in the water or on the rocks or on the shore and you can pick up these huge chunks of salt. And you can take it and you can crumble it right there in your hand. And actually, they told us to rub it on our skin. It exfoliates it. I've, I've never been so soft. It was, it was amazing. So while we're used to the pure and the processed table salt or the sodium of today, it was not so for the audience listening to Jesus. Most salt there was contaminated. It would have other earthly particles in it, sometimes like gypsum, something to negate the purity of the salt. Now, if there was enough salt in the mixture, it would stay salt. But if the salt was compromised, if it had too much gypsum or other contaminant in it, then when it was exposed to moisture or to dampness, the other elements, the other impurities of the salt would literally take over. And all the salt would leach out, making the salt tasteless and worthless. The properties of it are gone. The usefulness of it is gone. The taste is gone. Matthew says about this salt that it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Jesus is expanding really on this metaphor of salt. Not only are we laying ourselves up on the altar to expose ourselves to the fire and the salting of the master, to be purified and protected, but that's God's act. That's God's doing. 
We said it's God's fire. It's God's salt in verse 49. But here, verse 50, what is Jesus saying? What did we say causes salt to become unsalty? What drains it of its efficacy, of its flavor, of its preserving properties? This happens when it's contaminated, when it's mixed. Pure salt, pure salt stays salt forever and always. The salt will be salt. It will not lose its flavor. But when something that is contrary to the salt is presented, moisture, water, dampness, it brings out those impurities. Yet the moisture doesn't kill the foreign elements. It kills the salt. It kills what is good and useful. It allows that which was impure to take over, to rule, and to ultimately destroy the salt. Beloved, verse 49 is God's salt and God's fire. But this, verse 50, is our responsibility. To keep oneself unstained by the world. To stop mixing the unholy with the holy. Stop splitting our affections. If the salt is not pure, when the elements and the water come, and they will come, it will embolden and empower the contaminants in the salt, and they will win. And once the salt loses its saltiness, once the gypsum or the earthy contaminants have drained away the salt, it's worthless. It cannot be redeemed. Jesus is saying the same thing here that he's been saying all along. It's the same exhortation of of cutting off the hand and the foot and, and gouging out the eye. Get radical about the mixing of sin in your life. If you're weak when the temptation comes, if at that moment your spirit man is full of contaminants, if it's not built up, if it's not pure salt, the gypsum is going to win. It reminds me of a well-known story of a a man who used to take bets at dog fights, right? And any time he had his two dogs in a fight together, he would always win the bet. And of course, they asked him, how did you know which dog is always going to win? He said, that's simple. It's the dog that I feed. That's the dog that's going to win. Which is stronger? Which is pure? Keep oneself unstained by the world. Mixing does not work. Spending our Christian life trying to find out how close we can walk to the line without crossing it does not work. In a nutshell, what is Jesus saying in verse 50, saints? He's saying that we cannot hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. We can't do it. The world will win. It may take the elements to come, and it may take hardship to expose it, but it will win and the salt will be gone. Jesus closes this text by saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves, pure salt. Stop playing patty cake with the world. It desires to consume you. We are to be taste to a tasteless world, preservation to a decaying world. That's what salt does. And if we are pure today, with pure salt in our jar, guess what? You can come back and check on us 50 years from now and we'll still taste like salt. And that's not a function of what salt does, beloved. That's because of what salt is. Possess this, beloved. Possess it. Reminding ourselves of the covenant promises of God. 
the salt that is sprinkled over this living sacrifice that we lay on the altar, encouraging ourselves in the Lord, letting our faith be known to all men, remaining unstained by the world, flee immorality. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Help us, O Lord, to possess this.